0: If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans, chapter 6. This is, these next two weeks we'll sort of extend our um, series on God's good news into just a couple of different topics. If, if you're anxious to get into a, a book study, um, I'm even more so um, I think just the timing of things has worked out well for us to deal with some of these topics, and yet I'm ready to jump into a book of the Bible. And so just so you know where we're heading, uh, this Sunday we're going to think about, we, we talked about how God's good news um, is not something that's just in the past, but it's something that transforms us in the present. And the gospel is what is helping us to continue to grow as Christians. And so I want to think about what what that means, especially in light of what Paul says in Romans 6. Um, then next Sunday, I want us to think about how. As those who have repented and believed in Christ, we are not on our own, but we covenant together as a church. We are part of the body of Christ. And I think it'd be good at the beginning of this year to think what does it mean for us as a church to be together and to be walking together to encouraging one another. So we'll actually um we'll think on the passage that Pastor Henry read this morning next Sunday, but also um look particularly at our church covenant and remind ourselves where that's rooted in scripture and what we have committed to as one another. Um the 17th, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which we recognize every year, and so we'll be thinking on that um, in our sermon. And then we'll do four weeks in the Book of Jonah after that. And following that, my plan as of right now is to jump back into the Book of Genesis. Years ago, we did uh, the God of Abraham, and we did a series about the of about Abraham. And so we're going to pick up where we left off and think about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and those wonderful stories and try to dig in there and see what God has to teach us from the book of Genesis. But for this morning, we're in Romans chapter 6. As I said, we talked about God's good news, about the gospel, the fact that, that a holy and righteous God has made a way for sinners and rebels like you and me to be reconciled back to him, and he's done it by sending his son to be the substitute sacrifice for all who would repent and believe in him. And that's not just good news for a moment in time, but it's it's life-changing news for those who will respond in repentance and faith. And this week we're going to think about how the gospel changes us, how, how it changes the way that we the way that we live and who we are at the core. And we'll think about that this week and then think about the church next week. But for those of us that maybe are familiar with the gospel, we've sort of grown up in the gospel and hearing it many times we can begin to think that it's something that's relegated just to the, the past. So God sent Jesus, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, he ascended, and it all happened 2,000 years ago, which is a long time ago. It's something that's, that's very much in the past. And then maybe you became a Christian, I became a Christian, and it, and it happened in the past. It happened when I repented and, and had faith. But all of the deep, impactful things about the gospel seem to be in the past. And so we have this longing sometimes to, you know, I I wish we could have been, I wish I could have been around when Jesus was on earth, because that's when the real significant things about the gospel were happening, is when he was here. I wish I could be present in that moment. Or sometimes we can look back at the, the early days of our conversion, of coming to Jesus, of coming to faith in Christ, and we say, that's when I was really living for Christ in a unique way. And and so much of the power of the gospel in our lives seems to have to be in, in the past. The gospel is in many ways a past event, isn't it? It's rooted in what Christ has done. It's rooted in the moment in time where we repented and believed in Christ. But the good news of of God is not something that's just historical. It wasn't just a historical event, and it's not just a historical event in our lives where we came to the place of believing in Christ, but rather it's something that changes us completely and continues to do so, and not just us, but something that, that changes the whole world. I find it helpful to think about fairy tales when I think about it this way, because fairy tales are, are more true than maybe we realize. You, you see a story, and, and, and these fairy tales help us understand the, the broad scope of things, of, of, of good and, and evil. So you, you see something like um, a world where there's dragons that exist, and then you see a dragon that is killed and and that that as much as that's a fantasy that is reality that's that's the core truth of the gospel isn't it that Christ has come and killed the dragon that is satan and that's that's deep maybe deeper than we realize and so i love stories you know you read or you watch the lord of the rings and you're transported into a place like like middle earth and it's it's not our world but it reflects it so much so we see the weight that frodo bears and we can feel that in ourselves and and yet there's hope that that good will prevail my kids love listening to narnia introduced to to it by carolyn and the Wallaces, but this wonderful um the, this wonderful fictional telling of of the the world of narnia and, you, and and as they listen to it i get sucked in and you know you walk through the wardrobe into this place and it's it's amazing to think about the good and the evil that's there and and how there's it's always winter and never Christmas until Aslan shows up and then the snow starts to melt. And and that I can get that, but I, I don't see it as much in my world, but when I see it there then I start to understand that it's real here. Star Wars has been huge, hasn't it? And it's so much about what? The dark versus the light. And, and and as much as that movie and the theology of it is wrong, there's something deep about this, this battle that is happening between the light and the dark. We're going to read Pilgrim's Progress, and it's an allegory, it's fiction, but it has these deep truths. And as much as they are fiction, they speak deep into the reality of the world that we live in. It's a place where there are kingdoms, where the, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Satan are fighting against the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus introduces the gospel message, doesn't he? It's, it's with this imagery of, of kingdom. He, he calls us to repent and believe. And what does he say? Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Because there's a war happening and we need to choose sides. What side are we on? We can get mixed up in what Jesus means by kingdom. And there's some deep things about what he's communicating. But we shouldn't get lost. We shouldn't analyze it so much that we lose the, the basic image. And it's the image that Jesus has come to reign, and are we going to be on his kingdom, or are we going to be fighting against him? We saw in the gospel, we are born in opposition, we are outside of the kingdom of God, and we are a part of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, and we are fighting against Christ, we are rebelling against him, we are part of this kingdom of darkness, we are children of the devil. And the call of the gospel in many ways is that we would desert the kingdom of Satan, we would renounce our allegiance to it, and we would reject the rule of sin, we would reject death, we would re- reject Satan, and we would come and we would join God's kingdom. So when Paul describes the gospel, he uses fairy tale imagery almost. He says, he has delivered us from the domain, from the, the ruler of, from, from this kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So in Christ, God breaks into the fortress of darkness and he calls us to join, uh, join his kingdom. And if we repent and believe, we, we, we reject sin and we reject the power of sin and we believe that Jesus is the savior that, that he is, then he takes us out of this evil realm, this realm of darkness and places us into his kingdom of light. And now we are with Christ. We are, we are fighting with him. He saves us at the cost of his own life. So if Jesus has rescued you and me and made us a part of his kingdom, what's that going to look like? Because it can't be just some sort of past event that happens where we are fighting against God and now well, we're just sort of on God's team now. If this is a real battle that's happening and we have now switched sides, there's something deep that is going on here. And if I'm a part of this, this great kingdom, then then how do I become a part of that? And if I am a part of God's kingdom... And, and God is the ruler of this world, then why does it feel like I'm losing all the time? I don't know if you feel like that. If I'm in God's kingdom, then why does it feel like I'm not winning? Uh, and Why does it feel like those that are on the dark side, in the kingdom of Satan, why does it feel like evil is triumphing in this world? Why does it feel like evil triumphs in my own heart sometimes? How do I fight? What does the gospel, why, why does it just feel historical and it doesn't feel revolutionary in my present life i want us to look at romans 6 1 through 11 and see how the this truth of the gospel transforms us to see how how the good news has has changed us not just not just in a past decision but in in the present and how it continues to do that so just before that we're jumping into the middle of the book of romans and just before this paul has made a masterful explanation of what the gospel is that we are all born in sin and that we are rebels against God, and there is no hope for us to have salvation by good works, but that Christ has come as the second Adam, and he has died as our substitute. He's made it possible for us to come back to him, and he emphasizes over and over again grace, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by good works. It's not anything that you do. It's all of God's grace, and having emphasized grace so heavily, There's an objection that arises in verse 1 that people would bring to Paul. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The question is, since, since the more I sin, the more God's going to show me grace, should I keep on sinning so that grace continues to grow? In other words, does the gospel of grace, does this idea of grace actually promote sin? Does it enhance sin? That that may sound theoretical, but here's the reality of our lives. Does the fact that I know God is gracious and will forgive me cause me to sin knowing that he will forgive me? God's so full of grace that in a moment of temptation I just say, well, why don't I just sin because God will forgive me. I'll just do what I want and then I'll ask God. For forgiveness. And Paul's accused of that because his gospel is so focused on grace, which it is. And so we got to deal with that because that would seem strange, wouldn't it? That God who is opposed to sin, who hates sin, who takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of light. So we're in this kingdom now. Why would we sort of infiltrate the kingdom and then just continue to work for darkness, continue to live in sin, to continue to be enslaved to sin? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So, He summarizes his answer in in verse 2, but let's read verses 2 through 14. We'll start again in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So verse 2 is the simple answer to the question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Definitely not. (laughs) The King James that I grew up with, with says, "God forbid, God forbid, that we would let sin reign." And then he says, "How could we even do that? We are dead to sin. How could we let sin reign because we are we are dead to sin?" And now he's going to work that answer out in these following verses. So we see in verses three through through five. Let's just this would be our first kind of big idea is the the reality we must grasp. These will all kind of rhyme. Maybe it will stick in our heads better. The reality we must grasp is the first one. So verses 3 through 5, the reality is our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So when we come to him by repentance and faith, we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. By faith, we we die with Christ and we are raised with Christ. This is the heart of the gospel and of what it means to be a Christian and its union with Christ. We are united with him. So when we repent of sin and we trust in Christ, we're united with him in his death and his resurrection. Paul says that our old self dies and that just as Jesus was raised up from the dead, so too we are raised and we will be raised. There's this idea that we, have, we can walk in newness of life. That's the end of verse 4. But then also in verse 5 it says we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there's a future aspect, too, that we will also be raised up to new life, ultimate new life, eternal life, when he returns. And in the midst of this, Paul is tapping into the illustration of baptism, which is why baptism is the first step um, after we become a follower of Christ. It's the first step of obedience to those who come to faith in Christ. So we become citizens of God's kingdom by repentance and faith. That's that's how we come to Christ. We turn from sin and we trust in Christ. But God has given us this wonderful way to show to ourselves and to show to the world what has actually happened to us. There's something amazing that happened inside that that no one sees. And and the beauty of what God has done is he's given us this this wonderful symbol that we are to Show the world. So when Jesus says, go proclaim the gospel to everyone, baptizing them, that's a key part of what he wants us to do. Why? Because it shows what Christ has done. This commandment of of baptism, it shows that we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's the outward sign of what God has done inwardly. It's this outward sign that we are now citizens of a new kingdom. Some of you have become citizens of the United States through naturalization. Some of us were born citizens, but some of you have become citizens. And when you do that, there's lots of papers to fill out from what I know. I don't know. I've not done it, but there's lots of papers, I assume. There's tests that you have to take. There's all these things that, that are necessary. And, and after all the paperwork is done, there's a naturalization ceremony that happens over where Trevor works. Um, and and there's a a ceremony that, that you go through, and at that ceremony, various things take place, and one of those things is the Oath of Allegiance. Now, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I didn't have to take this oath. I guess I, by default, did, but listen to this oath. When you become a citizen of the United States through naturalization, this is the oath that is taken. I hereby declare on oath, does this sound familiar to anyone? On oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, of whom or which I have herefore to been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law. And that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. And once you say that, you get a flag. i give you a little American flag. I've driven by the, the courthouse afterwards and seen people with their their flag, that they are now citizens of the United States. But as I read through that, I thought, isn't that in a sense of what we are doing when we profess faith in Christ, but then when we baptize, when we, are, when we people are baptized publicly, it's this ceremony that says, this is what's happening. I am renouncing my allegiance to a foreign power. I'm renouncing my allegiance to to Satan and to sin, and my allegiance now is to Christ and to his kingdom, and it's because I have died been buried and raised up with Christ because I am united with him. (coughs) Excuse me. So baptism is a declaration of the kingdom that we are a part of, that we've entered into his kingdom. It's not how we enter, but it's a visual expression of what's happened inside. Those who have been saved by Christ through union with him in his death and his resurrection, we now wave the flag of being a part of his kingdom. That's who we are now. And baptism declares that reality of what has happened to us through the gospel. It declares that we are united with Christ. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. You know, I just we don't talk about baptism too much. We're a Baptist church. I believe in baptism one hundred percent. And when it shows up in the text, I'll talk about it. And it's right here. And I think if you are a Christian that you should be baptized. It's 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 the expression of to the world of, of who you are and of who your allegiance is to. You know, it's not as big a deal maybe in our culture sometimes as maybe we should make it, but it certainly is in other cultures that you can profess faith in Christ in certain countries where maybe Christianity is illegal, and, and, and you'll be okay if you just say, well, I believe in Jesus. But the moment you're baptized, that's when you're ostracized by others because it is this public declaration, my allegiance is to Christ and to no one else. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, that that's the first step of obedience that Christ calls us to, and it shows who we are at the core, that we are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Joel and I would love to talk to you about it. Let's do it. 2016 could be the year. But we are united with Christ, so that's the reality that we have to grasp, is our union with Christ. But the next thing Paul sort of bleeds into is, having shown that reality, he tells us there's a a mentality that we must live in. So the reality we must grasp, the mentality we must live in, a, a, a mental understanding of things. Paul, he talks about things that we need to know or or to believe. Just kind of notice this, verse 6. We know, this is we know something. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He says later on, in, in, in verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is something we believe. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. There's all these things that, that we see, that we understand about what Christ has done. We know that the death of Jesus brought the death of our old self so that we could walk with him in holiness. We know that the resurrection of Jesus brings new life to us. And allows us to walk with him in holiness. And after all understanding all of those things, Paul gives the first command of the passage in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This has always been troubling to me because I want Paul to tell me to do something, like do something to be holy. I struggle with sin and I struggle with holiness. I wanted to tell me what I'm supposed to do, and the 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 the, the action that he first gives is consider yourselves. <laughs> it sounds so simple, and and it doesn't sound like it's going to work to me because it's just this sort of mental state. Change, your, think about who you are, some sort of positive thinking. But this is, this is the command that, that he gives us. He's been telling us what we need to know, what is true about us if we've been united to Christ by, in his death and his resurrection. And now he says that we need to think that way. We need to recognize who we are. We need to live in this reality of being dead to sin and alive to God. We need to live in the reality of the fact that the kingdom of darkness has no power over us anymore. But we are fully under the control of God's kingdom. We are dead to sin. That's kind of how he answers it in verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He just says, why, He says, should we continue in sin The grace may abound? No, you can't because you're dead to sin, so you don't, you don't do that. Well, what does dead to sin mean? It certainly doesn't mean that you'd never sin. I think we all know that if we are Christians, that we still sin. But it means that the power of sin is not ultimate over us anymore. Apart from Christ, all we could do was sin. We lived in rebellion against God. But when that regeneration that we talked about last week happened, we now have the opportunity to say yes to God and to say no to sin. Before, all we could do was say no to God and yes to sin. And now, through Christ, we have the power to, to walk in holiness, to do what God has told us to do. This is why the, the command to be holy is, is, in part, become who you are, right? Be who who Christ, Christ. if you are united to him, you are dead to sin, and you are alive to holiness. Therefore, be who you are. You are dead to sin, and you are alive to Christ. You are set free. But so many of us, we still live as if we're enslaved to sin. There will always be a war that we have to wage, right? I mean, until Christ comes, we're going to be fighting against sin. We're going to be fighting against Satan. We're going to be fighting against our flesh and the devil until Christ comes back but there is also a sense in which we are free from the power of sin completely have you ever heard of the celebration Juneteenth anyone ever heard of that in on, on June 19th 1865 <clears throat> in Galveston Texas there was a union uh, Union soldiers came into this town they were led by a man named General Gordon Major General Gordon Granger and he showed up in Galveston, Texas. Again, that's June 19, 1865. This is two and a half years after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. So that happened January 1, 1863, which meant that the that slaves were free under executive order of the government. But this is two and a half years later that, that the Union soldiers finally get to Texas and deliver the news to the slaves there, that they are actually free. Up to this point, they had continued to live underneath their masters in the same way as they had before, not realizing that they were actually free, that they could do whatever they want under order of the executive government. But now that the Union soldiers showed up and General Lee had uh, surrendered, the forces were strong enough that they could overcome the resistance against the Emancipation Proclamation. And this date is celebrated in different areas as Juneteenth, it's a day that doesn't mark necessarily when the slaves were actually freed, but when they realized that they were free and were actually set free. I think for many of us, we need to keep having some sort of celebration like that. That, that we are, if we are united to Christ, we are dead to sin, and we are alive to Christ. We can walk with him, but we still live as if we are enslaved to sin. We don't realize we don't know in some sense that we actually can say no to sin and yes to Christ and walk in in holiness and it's this mental change that has to happen in us that says, no, I don't do this because I am a new creation in Christ. It's the mentality that we have to to live in. It seems so so simple and it, it seems like it wouldn't have the power, but it, it does if we understand, that our, our power to walk in holiness is rooted in what Christ has done and the fact that we are united with Him. And we say, I can say no to sin because I have been united with Christ. I am dead to sin. This is who I am at the core of my being. Of course, there's, there's, it's not just mental. There is a fight that happens in us. So we, we have this reality of who we are. And then we have the mentality of being dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then this is a bit of a push to get another. Uh, something that goes in there, but maybe it'll stick. The brutality we must fight with, okay? We'll call it that. The brutality we must fight with. I think that's Paul's point in verses 12 through 14. Because he says, here's who you are. Realize who you are and think that way. And then you need to fight for holiness in your life. Don't, Don't sin so that grace may abound. Rather, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let sin be king of of your life to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. There's a battle that's, that's waging, and I think it's so interesting. Where does he say this battle is at? It's in our mortal bodies, and he talks about members, which is, is the physical part of who we are. This is the, the 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 battle that we wage is against our flesh, which we think so often as immaterial, and there's an aspect to that that's true, but it is also our flesh. There's there's things that we desire in our in our minds and in our hearts and physically that that are opposed to God. That's why Romans 12, and I think so much of that is echoed, so much of of Romans 6 is echoed in Romans 12, and you know this well, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present what? Your bodies. Your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. So that gets back to that aspect. We change our minds about who we are, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think what Paul, in part, is saying here at the in Romans six twelve to fourteen is present your bodies as living sacrifices. That if this is who you are, you have died with Christ and been raised up with Him, then you need to we need to give ourselves completely over to Him, mind, soul, body, to follow after Him. I was listening to a sermon, and it, the, the the man mentioned that John Stott, as the first action of his day. Would 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 rise and present his body to God. He would say, "Here, here are my arms, God, to, to use for your glory. Here are my legs to use. For, here's my mind, may it may it be used in your service." And I think so too. We're called to present ourselves as 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 spiritual, physical beings to present ourselves to God and say, "God, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ, and I give you all of that I am." He talks about the members of your body. So we say, because of what Christ has done in us, Christ, I give you, I give you my mind to to think in a way that honors you. That that God would use the way that we, the way that we, the way that we read or, or the way that we process things or the way that we think. That He would use all of those things for His glory. That we wouldn't think in ways that are opposed to God, but we would think in ways that please God. We would take our eyes and we would surrender them to God. God would you use my eyes not to not to look on things that would displease you not to take pleasure in my with my eyes in things that are opposed to you but rather I would I would look at things in this world and I would rejoice in who you are that I would look with compassion on other people that I wouldn't look in judgment but I would I would look in in pity on others I would I would show kindness to others with the way that I look at them with my mouth God would I commit my mouth that my mouth is dead to sin I don't I don't gossip I don't say filthy jokes, I don't speak in anger, I don't yell, because I, I give my my mouth to you, God, I'm dead to those things, and I will use my mouth in a way that honors you, may it be filled with praises to you and songs to you, that we would surrender our ears, God, that we would, l- let me not listen to gospel, not that I just wouldn't speak it, but I wouldn't listen to it either, and I wouldn't listen to to filthy conversation, that I wouldn't listen to to... Um, things that would displease you, but rather I would fill my ears with your truth, that I would fill my ears with, with what is right and what is true. We could think about our sexuality and our longings. God, would you take that and use it in a way that honors you? God has made us physical beings. God, would you take these desires and make them something that honors you? I give over all of this not for my own selfish desires and what I want to do, but rather, God, that you would be glorified. In, in my longings, in my sexuality, in my appetite—the way that I eat—God, I give that over to you. I, I'm dead to to gluttony. I'm I'm dead to to always just thinking about food, and that's that's my what makes me survive. But rather, God, I I trust you, and I my 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 food is to do the will of God, as Jesus says. I give my hands to you, God that I would use my hands to help others, that they would be a blessing and not a curse, that I wouldn't strike people in anger, that I would use them in, in, in a way that is loving, that as I, as I click on things, that, that even the things that I click on would be something that is glorifying to you, that as I type messages, as I do these things, that they would be something that honors you. I give my hands to you, God. They are members used for your glory my feet, that I would walk in ways that are pleasing to God, that I would go to places that honor Him, and I wouldn't walk in ways that are displeasing to Him, that I would walk to those that are in need, and I would I would come to them with grace. I think that's what Paul is talking about here, that we would present ourselves that sin doesn't reign, sin doesn't control my mind, it doesn't control my eyes, it doesn't control my mouth, it doesn't control my ears, or my sexuality, or my appetite, or my hands, or my feet. Rather, Christ is king over all of that because I am dead to sin, and I am alive to God. And in this fight, we remember that we're fighting because of what Christ has done. He is the one who has died and risen again, and we can say no to sin, and yes to all of these things because we have died with him and been raised up. You know, we fight with sin. As a Christian, there's a there's a desire in us. If you have no desire for holiness, then that might be the first sign that that, that maybe your profession of faith is not something that is real. Because if, if we are followers of Christ, then we want to please him. We want to follow in his commandments. And we have this war that is waging within us. Should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, no way. can't do that because you are dead to sin. So much of it is rooted in who we are. Who am I? I'm a child of God. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God who is dead to sin, and I can say yes to what God has called me to do. And in the midst of that, because of who I am, I say sin will not reign in my mortal body. Sin will not be in charge because it is not in charge. Christ is king, Christ is my master. He will reign. Easier said than done, right? But but if we would renew our minds, even as, as Paul says later on, if we would present our bodies as living sacrifices, maybe we would adopt the, what, what Stott did, that we would present our bodies each morning, that we would wake up. And even before we're out of bed, we would say, God, would you use my hands, would you use my feet, would you use my eyes and my ears and my mouth and my mind in a way that would honor you and give myself over to you, God? Would you reign over every part of who I am? And then that we would renew our minds with truth, that we would remind ourselves often of what the gospel is, that it's not something that is just past a decision that we made or something that Jesus did, but rather it breaks into the present and we continue to live our lives in the fact that we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So baptism, as we talked about it, it marks our union with Christ. It declares this union with him. But what we're going to look forward to is that it also declares our union with with God's people. That as those who have been baptized into Christ, we are united not just with Christ and, and sort of just us and Jesus in that kingdom, but all who have been redeemed and ransomed are now in the kingdom with us. We're not fighting this battle on our own but rather we are together. We are not the only ones that have forsaken the light but, or forsaken the darkness but rather we are we are in this battle together and that's and we have to do that or else we will never survive and so we're going to talk about that next week. The scripture talks about this illustration of a family too that apart from Christ we are children of the devil but in Christ we are children of God he is our Father. Jesus is our brother and we've been adopted by him and we are all brothers and sisters. In Christ, I love that illustration and I love it in light of, of what we do this morning with the Lord's Supper because as a family we eat meals together. That's, that's what you do. Baptism in many ways emphasizes, it, it does emphasize the, the unity of, of the body of Christ, but it does focus specifically on the fact that we are united with Christ. And then the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance that we practice as a church, it shows that we are united to one another. Yes, it shows that Christ is our, is our life. He is the bread that gives us salvation. He is, his blood washes us from sin. But as we take from one loaf this morning, we all are saying, Jesus is my life. I have been united to him. We have all been united to him. And that is the unity that we have. And so as we celebrate this meal together and think about our union with Christ and his death and his resurrection and our union with one another, I just ask if, if you have come to faith in Christ, if there's been a moment where you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, a moment where you've repented of sin and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then I'd invite you to take this as, not as a means of any salvation, but rather as an expression of saying, Christ is my life. I have hope because of what Jesus has done. If that's not true of you, I just ask that you allow the, the bread and the cup to pass. We do ask that you've been baptized as a believer as well. Again, as I tried to make clear, it's not because that's what we think makes you a Christian. Repentance and faith is what makes you a believer. But rather, that is the first step of obedience. It's something that declares to the world that you have followed Christ, that you are united to him. And so if that's not true of you, if you haven't um, been baptized, or if your hope is not in Christ alone for salvation, I'd ask you to let the bread and the cup pass. I'm not trying to exclude anyone unnecessarily, but we do want to protect what Christ has given us in this meal. So let's take a moment and pause and, and reflect on, on God's word and, and confess sin. And then I will close this in prayer. Um, and then Joel and Evelyn will come and will distribute the, the bread first um, and take it together and do so the same with the cup. But let's take a moment of silence and I'll close this. <coughs> Father, we believe, help our unbelief, we believe that our hope is in Christ alone, and that we are dead to sin, we are able to walk in obedience, we believe this, Lord, and yet so often we don't, Lord, forgive us. We come to this table again because we want to declare that Jesus is our life, that He is the only hope that we have of salvation, the only hope that we have of walking in a way that would please you. We want to declare our unity together as your body, as those who are united by faith in Christ, repentance of sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be pleased with this time, that you would help us to think well on the bread and on the cup and ultimately on, on what they symbolize, on your broken body and your shed blood. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.